we are going to start our series on how to study the Bible. Uh, I have done this series a couple of different times in a couple of different ways, um, normally for similar purposes, but I've done it with small groups before in like little Bible studies. Um, and then I've also used this as I have helped prepare, um, I've only worked with guys, but help prepare guys who are planning on speaking in front of people, teaching the Bible. Um, and in as much as I think it's important to try to teach techniques about how to speak, if you're going to teach the Bible, I think it's more important that you actually have something worth teaching. And then we can talk about the techniques afterwards. Um, so regardless of whether or not you're trying to do this for yourself or because you're trying to be a better uh, disciple of Christ, because you're trying to be better in your family or be better for your neighbors or be better for your friends or your kids or whatever the, the purpose may be, hopefully what will occur in the next um, group of weeks here it will essentially make it such that you can pick up a Bible on your own and have not only... Um, the wherewithal of what to do on your own to kind of open it up and study it, but to do so in such a way then that can be beneficial um, for understanding it such that you could make it useful to others, right? Because that's really the, the goal of Christianity. The goal of discipleship is reduplication. That was the last thing that Jesus said before he left, right? Hey, as you're going out from here, be aware even though Jesus saying, I've got the authority, you are going to be my messengers to the ends of the earth. That's our job. That carried to us today. And so the goal is to try to understand this book better such that we might be better uh, apostles. We might be better, oh, that's too loaded of a word. We might be better disciples uh, and we might be uh, better messengers and ambassadors for Christ. So tonight what I want to do is to cover an introduction that will be the foundation upon which all of the following weeks uh, will be built. So for those of you that told me, and this is for those that are listening to this after the fact, but for those of you that told me that you wanted to come, uh, but you couldn't be here tonight, I hope that you really pay attention to this because the reality is every single week following will build upon what we established tonight. Um, you cannot study the Bible effectively, in my opinion, without uh, first learning these things. Uh, now, before we jump into it, I want to talk about first some theological presuppositions of our church. And the first one that I want to highlight that is not on your handout, and there is a handout in front of you with some pens, if that helps you follow along. If you don't want to do that, I am not offended in the least. Uh, but please feel free to ask questions, to interact. Let's work with this material together. But the first presupposition that I want to put on there uh, or that I want to highlight is not on that sheet, and it is this. In as much as I'm going to make big statements like I just made, hey, you have to understand this stuff to study the Bible, there's a whole asterisk that I need to put on this. God can do whatever he wants. He can. So if he wanted to come to you in the night tonight and click his fingers and make you the most um, accurate Bible scholar of all time without having to learn anything, he could do so. Right. We all know people who or at least have heard stories of people who sitting on a beach didn't know a thing about the Bible, opened it up and God used it to not only save them, but to turn them into powerful messengers of Christ. God can do whatever he darn well pleases. And that's why he's God. And that's why we worship him as such. However, the majority of the time, 
he normally will have us go through a discipleship process in which we learn things like this. The goal is to try to condense this information so that you can hopefully wield it well and go the way that it ends up having a tendency to be. Let's look at some other presuppositions that we have in the church. Number one, I'm not going to argue for these. Hey, guys, be, being that you're late, you have to come sit by me. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to argue for these. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these. Um, oh, good. You got an appropriate buffer of space. I appreciate that. Um, I'm not going to argue for these, though they, they clearly could be argued. These are huge theological statements, some of which we worked um, in previous Prothemia series um, talking about the theology of the Bible. Um, but here are just some things that right out the gate we need to make sure that we're clear on. Number one, that at Sierra Bible Church, we believe that the Bible is God's word to man. Okay? As God's word to man, the Bible carries authority. Not because the book in and of itself is a magical book or that the words are magical words. Hey there. Um, But it's because if God spoke to us in Scripture and God carries the authority, then the Bible, as a result, uh, the philosophers call this the principle of transitivity, um, that the Bible is authoritative in our lives. So, What this then means is that the Bible is where we find and get to know the voice of God. Hi there. Come on in. Um, The Bible is where we get to know the voice of God. And it also introduces us to an incredibly important concept that I need you guys to kind of pick up on. And it's this concept on your sheet there of authorial intent. Um, uh, Let me explain this concept in contrast. If you go to a modern art museum these days, um, and you, or even any, any art museum for that matter, and you start talking about the pieces that you see there, you will find that a lot of the times nobody is really that interested anymore in trying to determine what the artist intended to convey by making this piece. Instead, it, they have a tendency to say, how does this piece influence you? Or what do you think this piece means? And this is something that, unfortunately, it has kind of worked its way into the way that we use art and the way that we use the things that we read and deal with. Um, If you've ever been a part of a group Bible study before, it probably followed at some point in that Bible study that you read a passage and then somebody said, what do you think, what does this passage mean to you? I'm going to, at the outset, say, I don't care if we're talking about studying the Bible in generally speaking, because what we wanna ask first, eventually we'll get to the point of what does that mean to you? But what we wanna ask first is what did God intend to mean by this passage? The same way that if I wrote a novel and I wanted you to understand something as a result of that novel, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in your thoughts until you have understood that which I'm trying to communicate. This whole concept is the very reason for which we can have the conversations that I'm having right now. I want you to understand something. I have a purpose behind communicating in this way. And for you to effectively communicate back and to wrestle with the ideas means that you have to first strive to understand that which I'm communicating. That is the intent of the author. This is a crucial concept because we're saying that the Bible is authoritative. And it is authoritative because it carries God's message. 
But what that essentially means for us is that God had a purpose for saying the things that he said in the Bible. And the point of studying the Bible is to try to understand what that purpose was. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Let's go forward then. The next couple of ones will be a little bit faster. That was the most important one. Point two of the presuppositions for our church. When we talk about the Bible that we're going to be studying, we're going to talk about the 66 books of what I'll label as the Protestant Bible. I'm sure if you grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, you'll realize that the Roman Catholics have a Bible that have more books in it than the Protestant church does. Um, I'm not going to argue for one or the other right now, but I'm going to tell you that all we're going to focus on is the, presuppos uh, the presupposition of our church is we're going to be dealing with just the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Okay? Um, Next point, point three. Each book of the Bible, and here's where you're going to run across your first blanks if you're a blank filler inner. Uh, each book of the Bible has both human and divine origins. I put some passages there that you can reference at a second point. Uh, Paul talking in 2 Timothy, saying that all scripture is breathed out by God, that it has God's energy and force and life behind it. Um, a passage from 2 Peter uh, referring to the fact that no man ever spoke by themselves, but they, they, as they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Both of these passages, passages referencing the fact that though the Bible had human authors, it had divine, uh, a divine author uniting it all behind all of those individual human authors. So what this means is the following two points. Number one, each book carries the divine purpose and intent, like I just tried to establish for you, the, the books of the Bible had a divine purpose. God wanted to communicate something to us. If we're going to study the Bible, we're going to try to figure out what that purpose was. However, at the same time, as we strive to understand that, point two is also important, that each author, and I probably should have wrote the word each human author, retains his own personality and purpose. Okay, so jumping ahead of information that we'll deal with in other weeks, but just by way of illustration, when you get to the New Testament letters or the New Testament epistles, uh, let's take a, a letter that maybe Paul wrote. Paul was writing a specific message to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. He had his own purposes. However, at the same time, theologically speaking, and based on what we're talking about, God had a, had a purpose of using Paul and Paul's purpose in that moment. So I've been uh, studying Proverbs uh, in my, or I've been meditating on Proverbs in the morning uh, with my personal time with God. And in doing so, it's interesting how often that God points out to us that we make our plans, but God is always working behind the scenes directing our, set, our steps. He, does, uh, he says that in a variety of different ways. I like that we have the church leadership table over here. This is good. This is the, the heckling section. Uh, pay no attention. Yeah, exactly. That's good. I like that. <laughs> um, so all of that to say, you'll get, some, you'll get some human personality and purpose, but all of that is always having the driving purpose of God's communication behind it. So finally... In terms of the theological presuppositions of our church, the text of Scripture is therefore both temporal and timeless. The text of Scripture is therefore both temporal and timeless. 
So this is just by way of synthesizing what I've just tried to point out to you. There is a unique occasion and purpose for each of the books, right? So you could, uh, for, sometimes it's nice when the Bible is 100% completely obvious. John tells us the reason why he writes his gospel in John 20, 31. Hey, I wrote this down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John literally writes that in his gospel. This is my purpose. So if you go to try to understand John's gospel, if you come out with any other like general understanding of John's gospel other than what John writes down, hey, this is what my point is, then you're wrong, right? You're, you're just, you missed it. Go back and start over again. That's okay. However, there is also, that's the temporal concept, that there was, a, there was a period in time in which the author was writing for a specific purpose. However, it's also timeless. There is an eternal message that will never pass away, right? You get Jesus saying things like, heaven and earth may pass away, but I tell you that my words will never pass away. That when God communicates to mankind, there is an eternal message that will last for all time. So we've got both of those factors playing at one time. We have both the temporal factor and the timeless factor. Those are the basic presuppositions that I want to make in terms of our church. You can see if uh, you, you're, even if you're an arguing type of person, that all of those points could be argued, that all of them are worthy of being established. And we've, I've tried to do that in some other times when we've gotten together. But I'm just going to throw those out there that this is where our church leadership stands. And these are positions that we hold to be true. We are going to assume those positions as we then go forward in trying to understand how to study the Bible. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that we can't argue those. If you want to talk about these, let's talk about them, but afterwards. Okay? Because we're going to just assume them for the sake of our conversation as we move forward. So let's jump in then to our introduction to how to study the Bible, okay? Um, when it comes down to studying the Bible, uh, I want to make one quick distinction that uh, we, if you were here for our spiritual disciplines series, I am differentiating the quote-unquote study of the Bible from meditation on Scripture. Meditation on Scripture kind of has its own process uh, that, that a disciple would undergo, and that's still something that's worthwhile doing, we are talking more specifically about the study of Scripture. And when we're talking about the study of Scripture, we're talking about the process of trying to understand the purpose of why this was written, both God's purpose and we understand God's purpose by understanding what the human's purpose was. So there are two giant words that you are going to hear me use over and over and over again. I, because they are funky words that we don't use very often, I left them on your sheet here. But these two giant words, when it comes to the process of studying the Bible, are exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis and hermeneutics. Let's get some basic definition of what those two words mean. First, exegesis. When we're trying to figure out exegesis, we're trying to figure out what did the text mean to the original writer, and recipients. What did the text mean to the original writer and to the recipients? So this goes back to some points that I've already tried to explain to you. When we're doing exegesis, we are assuming authorial intent. We are assuming that the author of this text had a point, and that point 
Maybe it was a group of points. It may not always be just one point, but there was a, there was a reason in that author's mind for writing this text down. And if we're going to study, we need to figure out what was that point, because that's going to then guide how we understand the text. We also understand that not just by understanding the writer, but also by understanding the recipients of that. So these books, sometimes if they were, for instance, the prophetic books, they were written to specific groups of people within Israel. If they're the New Testament, uh, New Testament letters, they're written to specific people during the first century church. All of these groups, the better that we understand those groups, the better that we understand the point of why that letter was written. Um, a, a screaming example in my head uh, for the New Testament specifically are the letters to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, as you read them, you see the specific problem that Paul wants to address. He doesn't actually spend a whole lot of time in like these nice flowing transitions like he does in, say, the, book of, uh, the letter to the Romans or the letter to the Ephesians. In, in the Corinthians, he, he goes, all right, so let's talk about this. And then he finishes with that. And he's like, OK, so now let's talk about this. And then he finishes with that. Okay, now we got to talk about this because you told me about this and this is a problem. We got to address this. So Paul's very clearly making his point uh, along the way. And we've got to try to understand both what was going on in the church in Corinth to understand that letter and to understand Paul. That's the process of ex exegesis is we are exegeting a text. That's the verb form of that. We're trying to understand what the text meant to the writer and to the recipients. Does that make sense? going to be crucial. I want to make sure that that's just not, not just a nice yes, like please stop talking yes, but a, but a no, I get that yes, okay? Because the second, the second uh, crucial idea is to understand what hermeneutics is. Hermeneutics essentially asks the question, what does the message of the text mean to the current reader? What does the message of the text mean to the current reader? So essentially, if I were to boil down everything that is going to be said about studying the Bible in the next six weeks, it is this. You, you because you came tonight, you can listen to this and then you don't have to come for the rest of the weeks, right? But if you're going to exegete a text, you're, first, you're looking at the temporal concept. Why was the author writing this text? And who, to whom was this text being written? And why? Then you get that meaning. Once you get that meaning, you extract from that meaning a message of what does that essentially, now that I understand what the author is, I understand the reason for the text, I understand the people, now that I get that stuff, it starts to distill for me a message that has a much more timeless concept. Then hermeneutics is applying that timeless concept to me thousands of years later. That's what's downright dare I use the word magical about scripture, is that it is, it's a message that was written to a people group with which we have very little in common. I mean, ultimately, the only things we have in common with some of the recipients of this stuff is that we're human beings, you know, human nature. But everything about their lives was different than ours. And yet some of the stuff, actually all the stuff that's inside of this book ends up being relevant to our lives today thousands of years later. The hermeneutical process is trying to figure out how to take that message and apply it today. Now, I didn't create a blanks for the next thing because this, 
if you now get where I'm saying, we never, and this is why it is bold, caps locked, italicized, this is the, the phrase, we never start Bible study with hermeneutics. We never start Bible study with hermeneutics. It's dangerous, right? Uh, I mean, the, the old classic church joke, if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you've never heard this, but me growing up in churches, I've heard a pastor use this joke a hundred different times. But, you know, people trying to figure out how to study the text, and so they do Bible roulette, and they open it up, and they get to, and so Judas went and hung himself. Well, I'm not sure what I should do with that, God. What do you do? And they play Bible roulette and go, to, and go and do likewise, right? Some, some people, yeah, thank you at least for making a noise because it's that terrible of a joke. But some, some people, literally, that's their concept of studying the Bible. And I don't blame those people because there's a good chance that nobody ever taught them how to study the Bible. That's the church's fault. That's not their individual fault. They don't know how to study the Bible. But if you start by going, what does this text mean to me? You will almost always get manipulated. Adrian, this is what, kind of what we were talking about beforehand, right? That people have a tendency to use this book to accomplish all kinds of negative purposes for which it never actually was intended to mean because people don't know how to study the Bible. They don't know how to do the exegetical process first. And so somebody just says, well, this is what it means for you today. And you go, well, that sounds good. I mean, it's in the Bible. I guess, uh, I guess that makes sense. If you start with what it means today without understanding what it meant then, you will almost always go wrong. That's why we never start Bible study with hermeneutics. So that's then what brings me to my next point, that exegesis is for every text. Exegesis is for every text. Not just the ones that you don't understand. Here's where I want to kind of highlight a point. If you're going to get serious about studying scripture, you need to realize that you already in your mind have some assumptions about every passage that you, that you come to. Maybe those assumptions were built because you heard a preacher at some point say that this passage meant that. Maybe it's because your mom, since you were an infant, quoted to you a certain passage of scripture to get you to do something, but that's not actually what that passage really meant, right? Whatever the case may be, we all carry around with us these assumptions that we make of the text, if you're going to get serious about Bible study, you've got to question those assumptions every single time and make sure that you go through the exegetical process first, right? I mean, a, a, just a classic example um, is that I, I grew up being told that uh, you cannot use the Lord's name in vain, right? From the, from the, you'll, you'll find that in the Old Testament. Can't use the Lord's name in vain. And so literally, since I've been a kid, I have been incapable until adulthood and finally learning how to do exegesis. I, I was afraid to say the phrase, oh my God. That's what, it was, that's what it was taught to me, that you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. The Ten Commandments says that, that you can't say that. And the, the key question is, what are you basing that on? If you do the exegetical work, you'll realize that that commandment had nothing to do with saying the words, oh my God, right? Because even at that point, the English language didn't even exist. So that phrase, oh my God, couldn't have even been the, the point at which God could be commanding, hey, make sure that you don't say that. Number two, 
the whole idea of saying, oh my God, that's not God's name. That's the word that we use to reference our deity. But our God has a very specific name, Yahweh. That's how he has revealed himself to mankind. So again, I'm now looking at my phrase going, what's the problem with that? Then I dive into it and try to understand what did those words mean, and I realize that there's actually a unity in Scripture all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. James references this. Jesus references this. This is actually a phrase talking way more about the oaths and the way in which we try to manipulate people with our words. It was a standard practice that we would swear, that, and, and this is the English version, I swear to God, right? You swear to God only when I'm trying to convince you to do whatever it is that I want you to do. It may, be it believe me or whatever the case may be. But that, that commandment has way more uh, reference to that type of phrase than using the term, oh my God. I use this not as an example to try to tell you that you should go from this room and use the phrase, oh my, that don't violate your conscience. If you can't say it, that's fine. I'm not saying that you should say it. The point is that we cannot be, or we have to be careful not to automatically assume that we understand the English translation of these verses. We're going to talk more about that idea in a moment. When we do exegesis, let's get some of these blanks done. When we do exegesis, the goal of exegesis is to try to ask the right questions of the text. The key question, the number one question, if you were to boil it down, it is, and this is your first blank under doing exegesis, what is the context? What is the context? There are two different kinds of contexts. Would that be contices? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Context. Context? That's just... I just, I just I feel like I'm slurring my words if I say that. Context, whatever the case. <laughs> there are two different kinds of them, all right? There is the historical context, and there is the literary context. The historical context is the first one, and the literary context is the second one. Let's talk about each of these. When it comes to the historical context, um, I, I forgot to mention at the beginning that a lot of this information that I'm gonna use for the next six weeks is an adaptation of this book here. Um, I brought my copy. I think the current copies still look like this. I think, I think they're still using this cover. A lot of the times we carry it in our bookstore here. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, I was telling Adrian before we started, I first was introduced to this book, I think probably 15 years ago, and at the time it blew me away because I was getting towards the end of my, like, hyper-collegiate career. I think I was working on my master's degree at that point, like figuring out how to study the Bible. And I'd never been um, exposed to a book that was so plain speech, so accessible to somebody that didn't necessarily have this like crazy education or, or have a bunch of time. It just was a, was a book that I thought somebody could pick up and go, this is a way to learn how to study the Bible. And there are probably other books since then, because like I said, I first came across this book 15 years ago. There probably have been other books since then, but most of the information we talked about or will talk about over the next six weeks is an adaptation of from this book. So every once in a while, I'll throw in a quote. And uh, all of that to say, a quote from this book pertaining to historical context, it, it's, they say simply this, one wants to have an idea of what was going on in Israel or the church 
that called forth the document or what the situation of the author was that caused him to speak or to write. Basically, this should be recap of some of the stuff that, that you've heard me say so far. We're trying to figure out, when we're trying to figure out the historical context, what's going on when this thing was originally written, right? Because when, when you write a letter, let, I keep picking on letters, but that's kind of the easiest way to see it as we start out. When you write a letter, you're writing it for a purpose, right? And you're writing it within a time frame, be it a, a, a love letter um, talking about your relationship or uh, a letter to a deployed soldier to try to explain what's going on back home. All of those have historical context that are going on behind the scenes. And if you understand that historical context, you will understand the point of the letter so much better. Also understanding the historical context help, helps us to understand the author, helps us to understand uh, the recipients, the people to which it's written. So how do we go about doing that? Just some simple tips as we kind of start out, but we're, as we go through the next group of weeks, we're going to apply the exegetical process and the hermeneutical process to each of the different kinds of literature you find in Scripture. So these are just, just uh, some general tips to try to give you as we start out with. The, the Internet has exploded, right? And the Internet has all kinds of great historical information. Um, I had a teacher in my master's program say that um, you no longer can do a paper without citing Wikipedia. When I first started going through my collegiate process, that was laughable, right? Like it was only the, it was only the kid that didn't actually want to do research that was using the internet or using Wikipedia. Now, now Wikipedia or other sites like that have all kinds of great information. As long as you recognize that a lot of that stuff, I keep using Wikipedia because it's kind of an exemption, but a lot of the stuff you'll find on the internet is not necessarily as edited and as controlled as we might want it to be, right? As we make the joke, well, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? And, and therefore the earth is flat and uh, what all the other, insert your favorite internet conspiracy here. Um, chem, chemtrails, Illuminati, Various, various things. If it's on the internet, it must be true. But the internet can be a, a good tool. Um, I'm, I, as you'll obviously pick up from my references, I'm obviously a little bit more old school. I like pages. I like the, the feel and smell of books. I like to write into my books. Um, this is where Bible dictionaries become incredibly helpful. Um, in case you don't know the different tools that are out there, Bible dictionaries are really helpful. Um, you can also come across Bible encyclopedias that will give you more ideas of historical knowledge. We'll talk more about those as we kind of uh, go through each of the literary genres. When, when it comes to literary context, ultimately, this is where we start using the tools that we have gained in trying to understand other works of literature. The simplest question, the simplest way to understand literary context is ask yourself, what's the point? What's the point, Right? Words exist within sentences. Sentences exist within paragraphs. Paragraphs exemplify ideas. If we... I, I had thought about throwing in um, different types of examples, but I didn't want to spend a ton of time coming up with different examples for this. The, the, the bottom line is you're aware English is a perfect example for this. If you've ever tried to learn another language before, you realize how messed up English is. 
It is, for it being a global language, it is a crazy language that words can mean all kinds of different things depending on their what? Thank you very much. Say it loud for the people in the back, depending on their context, right? Right? That when, I, when I'm saying things to you, I'm saying them with a point. And you could take my words and twist them to mean all kinds of different things. When I just said, what's the point? You could start thinking about a sharpened pencil. But everyone in this room knows I'm not talking about sharpened pencils, right? I'm talking about the message that I want to get across. If we're going to try to understand the idea in the text, we've got to understand the idea that's flowing through the text. Does that make sense? Okay. So then. That's the basic process of doing exegesis. The basic pro- or the process of doing hermeneutics is, this, is even simpler to talk about, though it is more difficult to do. Doing hermeneutics is actually really easy to talk about, but it's where people end up tripping the most. Now that we have, when we do, when we do hermeneutics, now that we have the original intent, we ask, what is the eternal message? That's that blank there at the bottom of that sheet. What is the eternal message? Once we've gone through all the work of trying to understand what the text is actually trying to say, what does that mean for us today? That's the basic idea of hermeneutics. If you do your exegesis correctly, your hermeneutics should kind of naturally follow. But if you don't do your exegesis very well, or what is more often the case, you just get lazy and you do no exegesis whatsoever, you bring your own meaning to the text and now you get the Bible to say whatever it is that you want the Bible to say. And now you're starting your own cult. (laughs) So when it comes down to it, um, that's why we never start with hermeneutics. That's, you know, refer back to the all bold cap italicized uh, line. We do not start with hermeneutics. Some basic tools for the journey. This is the next page of your, of your filling out um, and will act as the transition to the next part of what I want to talk about tonight. Um, basic to- tools for the journey. Three categories. Number one, a good translation. A good translation. More on that in a moment. Just go ahead and write that down. Uh, I'm going to just throw out there that there are good translations of the Bible and there are bad translations of the Bible. So... Um, we're going to need a good translation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Tool number two. It will be useful for you um, to get a good Bible dictionary. We have, I think we have one or two different ones in the bookstore here. Um, you can buy them much, uh, you can buy them cheaply online. I'm, yeah, you can buy them cheaply online. Go ahead. Is the Bible dictionary the same thing as the concordance? No. And I thank you so much for asking that question. The question was, is a Bible dictionary the same thing as a concordance? There are two different things. Um, Let me define a concordance first. A concordance, the job of a concordance, if it's an exhaustive concordance, is to list for you every single verse that uses that word. And that can be difficult to do because, like we said, just in English, our English words can have a variety of meanings, right? Same thing with Hebrew words, same thing with Greek words, same thing with Aramaic words. 
So sometimes you don't necessarily know that the same word is being used. And when you want to try to understand that certain word, you want to understand that it has a range of meanings. That's where a concordance can be really helpful. And that is a great secondary tool. Um, I use concordances very often, especially when I'm translating scripture. Um, and I'll just go ahead and throw out there that I do not know Hebrew, Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, so I do not translate the Old Testament, but I spend a lot of time studying Greek. I am by no means a master or a mega scholar, um, but I loved studying Greek. And anytime I study the New Testament, I study it in its original language. When I want to do that, I almost always will use a Greek concordance because when I'm translating that passage, I don't want to know just the basic way in which that word can be used. I want to know all the different ways in which that word can be used. And I learned that by looking at other passages. That's what a concordance is good for. A dictionary, on the other hand, will take that idea and distill it down and give you just a basic definition of that word or a basic definition of who that person was or where that area was or where this people group was. So if I want to find out about you know, we talked about the letter to the Corinthians, and I want to find out about the church at Corinth or what was going on in the city of Corinth. I will use a dictionary to look that up, and that will give me a general idea of, hey, what was going on in Corinth around the time in which this letter was written? A concordance won't give me that. It'll just give me how many times the word Corinthians or Corinth is used. So if I had looked at the Bible dictionary, I would have been able to you might have you might have (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and that's and that's the point of that right so encyclopedias will kind of build on that um the probably the most popular bible dictionary you probably have an old dusty copy if you've grown up in the church at your house and you've never really known what it was except for a doorstop is Strong's. Um, uh, there's a diction. It's like that big of a book and it basically talks about all kinds of different things that you find within the Bible and gives you ranges of meanings. It's actually a very useful book. Uh, I'm sure it's probably there. I'm sure they can't sell copies anymore now that everybody probably uses the internet. And I, I don't mean to indicate that the internet is bad. It's just that um, you can't always trust what you come across, right? You, you type in the word, that's typing, by the way, you type in the word and you get there and you don't know who paid Google to make sure that their webpage was the first one that popped up, right? That's not conspiracy theory. That's just the way the internet works. It's all money. So who paid the most to make sure that their page showed up the first thing there and how trustworthy is that as a source of information? I don't know. I don't know. So if you have the discipline to consult lots of different sources and make sure that you're not just getting one whack jobs version of what it is that you're looking for, you might be okay using the internet. But there are some good book tools out there Do too. Do we sell them on the we, paper? So we have copies of these. We have Bible dictionaries that we use here and now. And then we usually, for an online resource that's trusted for all of these things, blueletterbible.org has a lot of trusted all of this. So there's, it has Strong's on there, it has dictionaries on there, and instead of having a big doorstop, like you mentioned, you can access all of it online if you're a digital person. So like for me... Say that website again? Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible. 
Facebook.org, and that's all free. You don't have to like it's pay for free. it. You okay. Can find commentaries on there. I'm sure some boys might talk about that. That's going to be the third line there. So look, Jesse's going to steal the thunder. Good commentaries, but go ahead and finish okay. your idea. That's the third line there. Yeah. So everything I use is, for the most part, it's online. There's a lot of reasons for that for myself. Appreciate the book side of it, um, but the, the ease of access and the speed of it, and then translating that stuff into my notes, for instance makes the process a lot faster for me. If you want something more complex, uh, but you pay more money for it, it's more of a, uh, probably more of a Bible teacher kind of thing, is Logos makes a program, and you can house your own digital library, own di your own dictionaries, your own exhaustive stuff, which I also use very heavily as well each week. And you can get a cheap program on that, and you can just add these resources to it. And what it does is it, um, it links everything together. So when you search, like if you search Yahweh, for instance, it'll pull up in all of your book resources every usage of that word and just allows you to get a big picture of it and then use it to whatever extent you want to yeah. and, and remember, when it comes down to good translation, good Bible dictionary, good commentaries, those three blanks there, you don't absolutely have to have this stuff. Okay, So I, I want to be clear that, that this can be a little bit overwhelming initially uh, when you're first being exposed to it. But that's the good thing about the internet is that that stuff can be had now cheaply. You don't have to go out. When I first uh, bought Lagos, uh, that stuff was like cutting edge in 98. And you had to throw down hundreds of dollars to buy stacks of CD-ROMs to load on my computer, which would like take forever to load up and all that kind of stuff. But I felt like I was the wave of the future at that point. It was fantastic. Um, L-O-G-O-S. Yeah. On, on that note, too, Brad, just to, I don't know, you, kind of, another, another thing to take note of on the commentary side is, is don't just trust, like, one particular set. There are good commentaries on good certain books, and I have some resources for that, too, when you go down that path. Like, so, for instance, I don't use the same commentary for Ruth as I do for John because the, the resources are stronger from somebody else from John than they are from Ruth. So if some of you, I'll just buy all of Calvin's set or whatever. That's great. It's a good thing to have. You probably use it because it's Calvin. But there's places you can go to find the best commentaries for that particular And in, in the future, we are going to talk about what makes a good commentary and is not a good commentary. Um, if you're just starting out, there's even in the back of this book, uh, the How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, there's actually a list of good commentaries. Um, and it, like Jesse is saying here, it's not necessarily that there's uh, one good series of commenta commentaries. Um, instead, you'll you kind of go book by book. Um, but anyway, co what a commentary is, if you're not familiar with what that is, um, is that these are people who are taking the text of Scripture and they're doing a lot of this work for you. They're writing out the important dictionary information. They're telling you important translation information. They're telling you important historical information. So as such, I would encourage you to always, in your study process, get used to using commentaries later in your study process because a lot of the times... Just like anything, these people are going to be a little bit biased about what the understanding is of that text. And that can be good 
Um, but as long as you're recognizing that that person is doing work for you and that person may have made a mistake in that process, just like you will make mistakes in the process, just like I have made mistakes in the process. So that's why sometimes it's important to learn how to do the process first before then jumping into the commentary and trusting that that person did the process themselves correctly. We'll talk more about commentaries in the, in the future. What I wanna finish up this evening with um, is talking about the first of the three tools. Because like I said to you just a moment ago, it is not crucial that you have all of these things. Um, however, if you're gonna try to take the study of the Bible seriously, you're gonna have to start by having a good translation of the text. So I wanna talk about the translation of the text, why we have the translations that we have, and what it means for a translation to be good as opposed to not so good, and then hopefully give you some various uh, thoughts in terms of what you might want to reach out for when it comes to a good translation. Remember, and here's your first blank here, translation is basically interpretation. Translation is basically interpretation. Again, if you've ever tried to learn another language before, like I do this all the time, I'll, I'll keep picking on myself. Um, so I do this all the time with speaking Spanish. Uh, I, I speak Spanish. People will accuse me of being fluent, and anyone that actually speaks Spanish fluently will tell you I'm nowhere near fluent in Spanish. Um, however, I can speak it conversationally. And what I mean by that is I know English well enough because I studied English uh, pretty extensively that I can figure out the idea that I'm trying to come up with and then my brain can quickly grasp for the Spanish vocab words that I know that would convey that idea. So don't ask me to uh, translate something directly for you and expect that I'm gonna get word for word from Spanish to English. I can't do that. However, I can understand Spanish enough to figure out the idea that you're talking about. Then my brain's gotta process my English response and, and what words I've got in my toolbox to then bring that over. Well, you can see that that whole process is very interpretive. I'm not telling you a word-for-word -word translation of what you said, and if I misunderstood what you were saying, then I've got an error in my translation and my interpretation. Or, even worse, if I pick a bad, a bad choice of words to convey the idea, now you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, and we've got all kinds of problems here. So when we're translating, you, you know that the Bible was not written in English, right? You're aware of this fact? Okay, good. This is good. Sometimes that, I mean, you, you never know what we're starting with. The Bible was not written in English. <clears throat> Initially, what's that? Well, uh, good, thank you. What was it written in? Good. <laughs> Initially, a lot of it wasn't even written. For a while, some stuff was kind of passed down orally before it then got written down, but ultimately, it was written down in three main languages. The two most common languages used in the, in the, uh, in the Bible are Hebrew and Greek. Primarily, the Old Testament is Hebrew. Almost exclusively, ex exclusively the New Testament is in Greek. Um, it's, in a, it's in a version of Greek, because there are lots of different types of Greek, just like there are lots of different types in of English. If you don't remember that, crack open your copy of Shakespeare that you've got collecting dust at home, you'll realize that English has changed a bit. Greek changed a bit as well. Hebrew is a whole different story that's a different conversation. But there's also um, some usage of Aramaic, uh, which was a common language of the people 
primarily Jews during the time in which some of the text was written. And so some of the text is also in Aramaic. But when translation is being done, the decision for the meaning of the words is being made for you. So ideally, it would be great if we could remove some of that interpretive process if we're going to study the Bible and learn the original languages. So great. All you got to do is come up with like an extra, I don't know, three hours of your day every day for the next five years, and you'll be able to be so much better at studying the Bible. Realistically speaking, we recognize that people are not going to be able to do that. That's okay. What a time to be alive. You don't have to know the original languages to do it well, as long as you recognize that you can't just take the language that you're comfortable with, English, and go, well, I know exactly what this means because some interpretation was done before it got to the English version that's in front of you. So realistically, here's probably your, your two options that you've got. Option one, and these are not exclusive of each other. Number one, use a well-known translation in study Bible form. Use a well-known translation in study Bible form. What I mean by that is that occasionally you'll, you'll come across, this isn't happening so much anymore because money moves everything, even when it comes to Bible translations, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but occasionally new translations will pop up or obscure translations will pop up. Um, be wary of translations of the Bible that nobody's ever heard of, right? If you go to the store and there is... A, you know, a deal on the new Greg Bible, that could be a problem, okay? We don't know who Greg is and what his, what his, what his jam is, right? So what we want to figure out, is, let's use a little bit more of a common translation. And it is helpful, though not necessary, but helpful, as I said, to use it in study Bible form. Here's why. In a study Bible, and even though as I'm saying this, I don't have a study Bible in front of me, but I see that most of you do, so you should probably teach this portion. But ultimately, depending upon what version of a study Bible you have, a lot of the times there are notes in the margins, and a lot of times there are notes in the footnotes. And that will start to bring up some of the interpretation information, the interpretive information, or the different translation information that's kind of difficult that's relevant to the passage that you're reading. You've got some of that resource right there in front of you so that it can kind of set your flags up of like, hey, I should probably pay attention and spend some time on this passage and not assume I know what this means. So um, that's step one. Step two, when you are in what I'm going to term deep study mode, okay? So now deep study mode, it pops up for me when I'm preparing to teach a text. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be getting in front of a couple of hundred people and saying, God wants you to know this. I better know what that actually is, right? So that's my deep study mode. But that's not unique to Bible teachers. Deep study mode can be your friend came to you and you're like, you believe the Bible, but did you see that there's like this passage says this and this passage says the opposite? The, nobody can believe the Bible, right? It's a waste of time. And you go, okay. I'm going to respond to this by saying, hold on, I see where you're coming from, and I appreciate our friendship, and thank you for telling me the truth. I want to study both of those texts and see if they actually are contradictory. Side note, they won't be, okay? <laughs> but, 
you oftentimes have to do the work to figure out why they are not contradictory. And what is it that we're not understanding that is causing your friend to believe that those two passages contradict one another? That might be your deep study mode. Maybe your deep study mode will pop up when your kid comes to you and goes, Dad, how? Maybe, actually, none of you have young enough kids. Maybe a couple of you do. How is it that Jesus is God, but at the same time, God died for our sins? And you're like, oh, because it's like super duper theology stuff, right? Right? And now, and now you try to explain it, and you sound terrible at explaining it. You're like, you know what? I should probably go back and study my Bible a little bit more. Now you're in deep study mode. Okay? When you're in deep study mode, whatever it might be that renders that occasion, use multiple translations. And here's where I do use the internet very frequently, because though I own, I think, probably five or six different English translations, um, I can't carry that stack with me everywhere. So sometimes I like to just look it up really quick. What does this translation say? What does that translation say? And the internet, I, I know that there's one website called Bible Hub that I have a tendency to, to go on a lot because you can literally just type in a passage reference and then just click, I want NIV now. Now I want ESV. Now I want New American Standard. Now I want Living Translation. And it just kind of cycles all those different things through. Uh, use multiple translations. What that will help you see is the way that interpretive groups have translated different passages and what's at stake. Like what things are people kind of wrestling with as they're, as they're interpreting that passage. Okay. So here are five issues that kind of lend itself. Um, this, is, this is more just kind of for your information in a sense because it can be overwhelming to think about different Bible translations. I could probably draw a line in your head right now. Like if you need to take your nap, go ahead and take your nap uh, at this point because the, what follows from here is just, these are different, uh, different issues that arise when it comes to the reason why we have different Bible translations and what they're all about and why they exist. I've already tried to give you the tips of what to do to deal with it, to march forward. So you've got your marching orders. Now this is just extra information. This is the bonus material on the DVD, okay? This is, this is the extra stuff. Five things just to bring up in terms of issues for finding the best translation. Number one, I talked about this at length um, in other classes, so I will not go off um, as crazy as I have in the past about the idea of textual criticism. That is not a negative thing. I know you see the word criticism and you automatically, or you might automatically assume that what this means is that these are people that are looking at the Bible and finding problems. That is not what it is. Textual criticism is the process by which we try to figure out what actually was written down. What was written down when it was written down, okay? So I will not speak uh, to the Old Testament. Again, I'm not, I'm not any version of an Old Testament scholar, but I have spent some time studying the New Testament and trying to understand the historicity of the New Testament. And, and so here's, here's the crucial idea that you need to recognize. We have no original manuscripts of any of the New Testament books. No original manuscripts. You can't go find... John's original letter to somebody. You can't go find 
Paul's original letter or Matthew's original gospel. You can't find them. We don't have them. You know, like the Declaration of Independence that we've got like in, in like seven inch glass that you can barely see through it. Like we've got the original thing. We don't have that for any of the New Testament. That's not a problem, and we can talk about that for different, or at a different time. But the science of textual criticism is how do we then use the copies that were generated as a result of, those, of that original manuscript? How do we make sure that the version that we're using for our translation matches the closest, the closest version of what we think the original actually stated? That was a very confusing way of saying that. So we don't have the original, right? What we do have is lots of copies. So let's say that this is the original of the text, right? This is the letter that Peter wrote to his, to his uh, disciples. This is what he wants, right? We don't have this. But what the church would do is they'd get the letter and they're like, wow, this is good stuff. Other people are going to want to read this. Hey, copyists, everybody would come in and they would either read it and everyone would be writing down. This was old-fashioned Xerox machines, right? They, one guy would read it and everybody would write it down. Or that's most likely what would happen. So you, then you'd get copies and copies and copies. And then the next people, they'd get those copies, right? Hey, this is good stuff. And they make more copies. And so now we've got all kinds of copies. We have more copies of the New Testament documents than any other, I, I want to say it's either six or seven works of antiquity combined when it comes to copies. People from the dawn of when these things were written for the first time recognize that there is something special about these documents and we need to make sure that there's plenty of copies of them. We've got tons of copies. The problem is, let's say I'm reading original version and you're writing it down and you mishear what I say. And so you write down the wrong word. Then the people who get your copy, they're trying to make copies and they start to copy your wrong word copy, etc., etc. So errors start to creep in. The process of textual criticism is trying to figure out how do we weed out those errors so that we can get back to what we believe is on the original text. Textual criticism is, an, is not an exact science, but it's a science that is done not just by biblical scholars. It's done by uh, all scholars of works from antiquity. It has a very specific procedure uh, that is used. And as a result, we have a, a reliable version of the New Testament. However, there's still disagreement that's out there. Okay. There's, there's some disagreement. None of the disagreement pertains to, uh, issues of major theology. You will, there's no chance that any of the text is any, is being disagreed upon, upon things that will be, you know, the, the quiz, the entrance quiz, when you first get to heaven, that's not actually going to occur. Yeah, don't worry about it. What? There's a test? <laughs> Dang it. I should have studied. No, uh, no. The, the point is, um, none of those things are of crucial theological significance, but you need to know that there's some disagreement that are out there. The reason why I'm babbling about all this, that was longer than I anticipated to talk about it. The point is this. Some of the different versions of translations exist because some people have said, we want to use these groups of manuscripts for our translation. And other groups have said, eh, we don't like that group of manuscripts. We're going to use these groups of manuscripts for our translation. And so sometimes as a result, in your English translations, you'll get verses that don't seem to say the same thing. And it's because they're using different groups of, of manuscripts to then translate. So that's a problem right there. 
okay? Another problem, next problem. You have the original language to the translated language, that's your first blank, to the translated language plus time, right? So you got your original language, then to the translated language plus time. We see this no better than where we see the differentiation that might come between reading the King James version of the text and reading a very modern version of the text. Because the King James Version, the authorized version of the text, was written in the 1600s, okay? English was a little bit different back then. Just a, just a skosh. It was different, okay? With the difference of the English language, the words that were being used to translate the original language may not necessarily even mean a whole lot, right? Like, I just picked one example just so that we could work with it. Matthew 5.41 in the King James Version. And whosoever shall, I have to read it with a British accent, I believe. And whosoever no, shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go and do likewise, right? So you look at that and you're like, um, Jesus, I don't know what you're saying, right? I, I don't get it. So to further complicate the matter, those that translated the King James Version, they liked this certain group of manuscripts over here. And those that, for instance, translated the New American Standard Bible, they liked this group of manuscripts over here. So first they had to make those interpretive decisions. Then they had to translate into the language that they chose in the time in which it was chosen. And now you reading it in whatever, whatever time frame has elapsed, you may not even know what those English words mean, let alone what they were trying to convey of the original language. Even the versions that we use today, the, the two most popular versions that we use at our church are the New American Standard Version and the English Standard Version. The New American Standard Version was written, I want to say, in the mid-80s, something like that, maybe the late 80s. Now, you may not think that things have changed significantly between the 80s and now, but let's not forget that we're, we're pushing. I know it's not exactly that number, and I'm not trying to say that anyone in this room is old, but we're pushing about a half a century worth of development, close to it, in terms of the ideas that were being conveyed when that translation was being written down. Think of how much has changed within the last 30, 40 years. Think of how much has changed within the last 10 years in terms of how words are being used and the way in which they're being used. So you have this issue of the, of the original language getting translated to the language in which it exists, plus then the time that elapses. That's another issue. A third issue, I won't talk about this too much, although you need to know about it exists. You need to know about it as an issue, that marketing produces availability. And I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but if, you're a, if you are a paying attention adult, you realize that money has some influence on our culture, does it not? Money is important. As I was growing up, um, the, the version of the Bible that everybody was using was the NIV. And the reason why the version of the Bible, at least everyone in my circles that was using the Bible was the NIV, and this, is, this has nothing, I'm not going to say anything negative about the NIV. Um, but the point is, the, NIV, the, the publishers of the NIV figured something out. If they could get a bunch of free versions of their translation out, then when people 
came to actually then buy a really nice study Bible, they'd want to buy the version that they were used to reading with regularity. So back in the late 80s and the 90s, you know, when I was like first starting to try to read the Bible for myself, every version of the Bible that I'd reach for, everywhere that I went, it was always the NIV. The NIV had the corner on the market. Meanwhile, what I would argue would be a little bit more of an accurate translation, the New American Standard Bible at the time, was falling. It just, it was failing. Nobody was using it, despite the fact that it was a little bit better of a translation. And it was simply because of the marketing strategies of the different publishers who own the rights to those translations. You read this book that we've talked about here, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Time and time again, they will reference a version of the Bible that I bet you've never even heard of before, the TNIV. And the reason why you, is you look down here and you realize that Zondervan published this book. Zondervan is a lion of a publishing company when it comes to Christian literature. I don't have a problem with Zondervan, but who do you think owns the rights to the TNIV? Give you one guess. Zondervan, right? So these authors who are trying to tell you that the TNIV is fantastic, they might be slightly biased, right? So I'm just, I'm just going to throw that out there. That's an issue, as, an issue as well. Where did the ESV, this other really popular translation, it's my, my ratty old little Bible that I have here is an ESV. The ESV came from people who were trying to kind of update the NIV and include new scholarship and new endorsements. And they were also, at the time, trying to respond to this thing that was occurring where people were taking the Bible and trying to extract and neutralize all masculine-specific language and try to make it gender-neutral. And it was like a big point of argument uh, in the 90s when they first started this translation point. And so this one popped up with these people going, no, we can't let that happen. And I'm not going to give any commentary on any of those different things. The point is this. Um, one of my mentors in college said this when it came to Bible versions. I don't care what Bible version you read. Read the Bible and I will be happy. Right? If you find a different version... I'm not going to tell you your version is inferior to mine. I'm not going to tell you, no, no, don't read that version. We've, I've already talked about some, some points pertaining to that, and I'm going to talk about a couple of more. Um, but the point is, never should somebody be telling you that we have, we have the version of the Bible that God has brought us down, and this is the holy version that all shall use. My, my wife's church is a King James-only church, and all other versions of the Bible um, are anathema. They are, all, they are an abomination to the Lord, the, anything that is not the, new King, the King James. You know what I tell them? Awesome, read the King James. I don't care. I, I'm, I'm not going to get in a fight over what version of the Bible should be used. Read the Bible first. I'll let the Spirit kind of work in your heart. And if we want to talk about it, and if we need to talk about the text, and I can't talk about that text without talking about it in the King James, I'm going to use the King James. Because understanding the text is more important to me than dying on a hill of what translation of the Bible to use. They're all bad. <laughs> right? Because they're all interpretive options. They're all interpretive. There is a new King James. Um, and that's actually a good, transla a, a good transition to my next point here. I gave you a little bit of a chart on your sheet. Because basically when it comes down to translation ideas, um, the, the balance that's constantly being tried to be, uh, that they're constantly trying to strike is the translation of words 
versus the translation of ideas. The translation of words is referred to as formal equivalence so that you can get like a one-for-one -one trade for the word. So you get this Hebrew word, here's an English word that matches the meaning of that Hebrew word, so we're gonna smack that one in there. That seems like that's what you would wanna do. The problem is it, you run into all kinds of issues like they use different kinds of money than we did, right? So you ever, this is New Testament, but you, you ever come across a version or a verse that talks about a denarius and you're like, uh, I don't know what a denarius is, right? And so your, your version of the Bible literally just writes out the word denarius because monetary values are constantly changing. Um, and your study Bible will put like a little asterisk on there and it'll essentially say a denarius is, uh, is essentially equivalent to a full day's wages for a laborer, right? So they're not even gonna commit themselves to a number because that has a time concept to it. A full day's wages to a laborer 50 years ago were pretty different than what a full day's wages of a laborer are now. But if you tried to do just a word for word, um, well, what would be a way to translate that over? You, you get like in the King James, you've got sometimes references to what would be a really big uh, amount of money being referred to as a very small amount of money and the meaning somehow gets changed. That's the problem with formal equivalence. So on the other side, you have functional equivalence, trying to translate the idea. How do we get the idea across? How do I get that idea of a day's wages across to you instead of worrying about an exact word for word of a denarius? And there is constantly a balancing act being done for you when we have the interpretation and the translation of scripture going. So what I made for you there is a little chart that has probably the most common translations you will stumble across when grabbing for a translation of the Bible, right? So you have on the far left, the formal equivalence, and this actually is a flowing chart. So think of it as, as a, a range. As it gets farther to the right, it is far more towards the functional side. If it's farther to the left, it's far more towards the, the formal side, the word for word. So on the formal side, you have the King James or the New King James. You have the New American Standard Bible. They're over there. But you see, as we start to move closer to functional ideas, you start coming across the English Standard Version, the New International Version, today's New International Version, the TNIV. You might have come across the New Living Translation. You'll notice that it's it's almost difficult to call the New Living Translation a translation because they are really just focusing on translating the ideas. They're focusing much more on the formal side. I'm sorry, the functional side. And then I even just threw in the category to the far right of the chart there, referring to the Living Bible or the Message. I don't know if you've heard of either of those. Um, all of these, let me just say this, because I'm going to go back to my point. I don't really care what version of the Bible you're going to use. All of these have a very strong purpose to them. Um, let me use uh, an example here from my own life. I was trying to understand the passage um, in which Jesus is dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus, or he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And the, and the passage references the fact that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. And I've heard sermon after sermon about this, this uh, issue of Jesus crying in that moment, being such a significant thing, talking about his love for Lazarus, etc., etc. And even the people there, the text says, they, they responded to Jesus being moved in spirit, saying, see how he loved him. The people, though, 
didn't understand something and I didn't understand something and I didn't even know that I didn't understand something until I actually read the account of that story in the message. You'll see which is on the farthest side. Not worried about trying to get a word for word but instead an idea for an idea. Eugene Peterson did some interpretive work and recognized that what's being conveyed there in Jesus is not sadness but frustration. And the way in which he writes it in the message there talks about because the idea the actual idea that's trying to be conveyed in the language is if you've ever been around a horse before and tried to put a saddle on that horse and you cinch down the strap that goes underneath their belly, they make a sound and have a response to it that makes it very clear that they're not super excited that you're cinching this thing on. You probably make that sound after Thanksgiving when you're trying to put your belt back on. It's the same, that's the concept that's there in that text. The reason why I bring this up is not to say that the message um, is the version of the scripture that you should use. No, this is to make an argument for multiple, using multiple translations when you're trying to understand a text. Because sometimes you might just get tripped up over and over and over again by what you think the English word is saying and miss the idea. Or sometimes that idea needs to be supplemented by a better understanding of what the word for word translation would mean. We've got to balance these two things out. Okay, so that's the, that's the example I want to throw out there. Five, last point, um, and this can be said quickly. Not all translations can be trusted, and I gave you two examples there. Um, one of which you may have heard of before, the New World Translation. That is the translation of the Bible that was made by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe a lot of incorrect theological information. A lot of the reason for that is because they made their own version of the Bible, which translates ideas uh, in, in, into their theological structure. Um, it becomes difficult. Uh, I, I remember the last time, because I, I constantly get put on the blacklist and the Jehovah's Witnesses don't come to my house anymore. But before they knew that they could... that. That before I got put on that list, they would come over and we couldn't, use the, we couldn't use English versions of the Bible because they would use the New World Translation and I would use a more accurate translation. And our, our versions of, for instance, John 1.1 1, 1, and the word was, does it say, and the word was God or the word was a God? That becomes a crucial point if you're trying to understand, are we saying that Jesus was the pre-existent God to the universe? Or are we saying that he was pretty significant and so significant that the text often refers to him as a God, but there's only one God who is Jehovah because they don't believe in a Trinitarian concept in Jehovah's Witnesses. So instead, what I would have to do is I would have to go through a, a Greek lesson with the individuals that would come and I'd pull out the Greek text and I'd show them how, this is why, this is how you get put on the blacklist, by the way, is I, I would have to show them how the, how the Greek language works and why their translation was inaccurate. Um, I use that just as an example to say that the translation of the text that you use is important. Don't get me wrong when I say that I'm not going to argue with you initially if we're studying the Bible. Let's study the Bible. But there are good translations and there are bad translations. Uh, a notable bad translation that nobody really likes to talk about, including the church that would, uh, that still kind of counts as its origin is that I don't know if you are that you know that Joseph Smith did a translation of the Bible because he has Joseph Smith um, kind of started Mormonism 
Um, and there, I mean, there were other people that you would probably list off, but Joseph Smith is probably the key character in the beginning of Mormonism. Um, the, the problem is that Mormonism began because Joseph Smith translated these golden tablets and it was extra stuff that we didn't get from the, from the New Testament and he had to share that with us. What became a problem for the Mormon church is that then Joseph Smith decided that he should also translate the original languages of the Bible um, into his own translation of the text that the Mormon church could use, and we found out how bad of a linguist he actually was, and he was not capable of translating the text. And so the Mormon church kind of hid the fact that Joseph Smith did a translation of the text because it kind of creates some problems uh, if you're going to base your religion off of his, translate, his translating ability. That being said, um, those are two examples. Fortunately, the ones that are the easiest to access and easiest to find, um, I've listed them off here. They're all relatively trustworthy as long as you're aware of the interpretive things that are done for you ahead of time and why they exist. So, let's recap. Uh, the point of what we tried to accomplish tonight was to point out that when we're going to study the Bible, we need to understand the process of exegesis and then do the process of hermeneutics to figure out what is that eternal message to ourself. The key, uh, once we've done those, uh, or, or the key way in which we do those things, though we've talked about some different tools, is making sure that we use um, an accurate and useful version of, uh, an accurate and useful translation of the text. If you're going to go into deep study mode, I encouraged you use multiple translations. And I've now shown you lots of different reasons why there are different translations and why you ought to use different translations when doing that. What we will do from here, it will be far less in the theoretical when it comes to these different ideas. What we'll do from here in the following weeks is that I don't know if you're aware, but there are different types of literature within the Bible. They're not all the same, right? Jesse's preaching from Ruth, which has a very historical flow to it, which is really different than a letter that Paul wrote that doesn't necessarily have a historical flow. So we're going to look at each of those different types of literature in the Bible and try to figure out what's the best way to exegetically approach that, and then what are the hermeneutical principles that we then apply to the information that we get from the exegesis. So that's, we'll, we'll then focus on each of those groups of literature. Next week, we're going to start with the epistles because they are, I think, some of the easiest to misunderstand and yet some of the easiest to see how these principles work.